if you would grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 23. Uh, We're going to pick up where we left off last week uh, in verse 24. And so for the past couple of weeks, we've been kind of leading up to this. Uh, In the first week, two weeks ago, uh, we talked about the cup and Jesus' preparation uh, for the disciples uh, for the crucifixion and the resurrection, which we'll dive into today. Uh, That cup represented that preparation. Uh, The upper room, the last supper that they partook partook in together. Um, And then the cup broadly and even now represented for us His preparation, Jesus' preparation for the new covenant that would come uh, through His death and resurrection by His shed blood and His broken body. Uh, And then last week we looked at the rejection of Jesus and the rejection of Him uh, from His enemies, from His friends, from the religious leaders, from the uh, political leaders, from just the the general public, um, military men, all rejected him in, in the court uh, where he was eventually sentenced to die. And even Pilate saying, listen, I can't find any guilt in him, but I hear what you guys are saying. Crucify him. I hear you want Barabbas. And so I'll turn over this murderer and this traitor to you and I'll keep the innocent man, Jesus. And that in and in and of itself right there is really a picture of what Christ came to do for us and that the guilty go free and the innocent go to death. And so that's where we pick it up in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 24. I, I'm, I was reminded in preparation for this uh, of a time I don't remember how old I was when this happened, but I had a neighbor uh, down the street from me. We lived in a cul-de-sac growing up in Bixby. I had a neighbor, uh, the Mungers, uh, oldest son, Matt Munger, and I went to his house one day. The basketball goal that we would play on uh, was in the street, in the cul-de-sac, and it was close to his house. And so uh, I I was out in the cul-de-sac, in the street, all the time playing basketball. Uh, that's what I loved to do, uh, probably my main hobby. And, uh, and so I had gone out there one day, and, and I wanted somebody to play against. And so I went to see if Matt could uh, come out and play basketball. And so I went up to the door, I talked to him, and he said, hey, I'm busy. He said, Man, why are you always playing basketball? I said, well, because I love basketball, and I'm going to be in the NBA one day. And uh, he <laughs> reacted probably about the same way that you just did. Uh, yeah, that's a silly pipe dream. And, and I said, no, I am. I'm serious. Like, I'm going to be in the NBA. And I, I think I mentioned a team, and I don't honestly remember who it is. I remember who I think I said, and I don't even want to say that, um, because I would never even, anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm not going to play in the NBA. I didn't play in the NBA. The point is, I made a claim about myself And he knew it then, and anybody else that would have heard it knew, and you know, listening to it right now, that didn't pan out. I said I would, I said I would be, and that didn't come to fruition. When we begin in this narrative, this kind of culminates a lot of what Jesus said and what Jesus did 
And, and it's really the springboard into everything that Jesus said about Himself, everything that He said that He would do, everything that was said about Him begins to blossom and bloom, even whatever hadn't yet does now. And so that's what we're going to see in this passage today. In chapter 23 of Luke, starting in verse 24, the crowd was yelling, crucify him. And so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man, Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Now what Luke doesn't go into in, in detail in his narrative that the other Gospels did is that they picked a guy out of the crowd, Simon of Cyrene, to carry this cross for Jesus because Jesus has already been tortured near the point of death, and he could not physically make it from where they set out to the place where he would be crucified, carrying the cross himself. His flesh was ripped off of his back through the cat of nine tails, uh, lashes over and over. If you're not familiar with this really weapon, was a, a, a leather kind of whip-like thing that had nine tails, and at the end of each of those, there were shards of glass or shards of metal, something that was sharp that would cut you, and so they would, they would whip a person with it, and then many times it would get stuck in their flesh, and so that they would just tear it off, and they did this to Jesus up and down his back, his sides, um, flesh showing, flesh ripped off, bones in full appearance. Jesus had already to this point been brutally tortured, and yet they're still yelling for his death. Crucify him, execute him. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. They knew what was coming for Jesus. Anybody who was present knew what was coming. I mean, one, looking at him. Two, being familiar with the Roman Empire. Three, being familiar with the Roman Empire's choice method of execution as a display of, you don't mess with Rome because this could happen to you. It, brutal. They know what's coming for him. 28, but turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and all the hills cover us, for they do, do these things when the wood is green, but what will happen when it is dry? And basically right there he's saying, Listen, you guys are weeping for me, and, and listen, where I'm at in the situation that I'm in is not pretty. But there's going to come a time very soon when you're going to be begging. People in Jerusalem are going to be begging for a natural disaster to take their life because the, the situation and the conditions will be so dire and so destitute. I, I was reading a commentary and it said that at shortly after this, between 66 and 67, when there's a 
a siege. Rome was trying to siege Jerusalem, and there was a war going on, and there was famine in Jerusalem because of what Rome was doing, and that it, it was said of that time that even mothers were having to eat their children because the times were so desperate, because there was no food whatsoever to speak of because of what Rome was trying to do to the city uh, and sieging it. That's the sort of thing that Jesus is talking about here. Uh, listen, it is not going to turn out well for you. And it could be even said that it was uh, in figurative form talking about even what, what comes for those who are still in their sin upon death and, and what is not pretty sitting under the wrath of God for eternity. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Imagine being in Jesus' position, brutally tortured, now on the cross, suffering towards suffocation and, and he says of the people responsible for him being there the crowd even us those who put him there physically his executioners father forgive them for they know not what they do imagine for a moment being brutally murdered and as you're being brutally murdered asking father forgive this person or even being the family member of somebody like that and and the family member saying father not give them justice not give them what they deserve not i hope they get what's coming to them but father forgive them even in their guilt even in your justice, I'm asking you to forgive them. And that's what Jesus says as he's hanging there, suffocating. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, then save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, noontime, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Okay, pause for a second. It's noontime, and it's not storm clouds and overcast, and it's just darker outside. Like, 
we're used to in Oklahoma. Like we're talking legit nighttime, black, can't see what's in front of my face, no moon, no starlight, darkness, nighttime. That doesn't just happen. It wasn't a natural phenomenon. It it wasn't something that just happened to line up with this act of execution of Jesus. Like this was a miracle of God pointing to the significance of what Jesus happened and when it's of what Jesus was doing, what was happening to him. And when it says that the curtain of the temple was torn in two, this was not that somebody went in there in a rage and ripped the curtain opened. Nobody, one, nobody would do that. Two, nobody could do that because of the thickness and the, the, the weight, the vastness, the strength of that curtain. You couldn't just rip it in two. And second, nobody would dare go in there to that place. One, because it would have been guarded. Two, because... They would have seen that as if I enter into that place that's separating me by this curtain from what's on the other side of that curtain, I will die before God. That represents God's very presence. And this act coinciding with Jesus' death is illustrating for us the open way that it is bringing for us to enter into God's presence. Significance. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. I mean, this would have taken, at this moment, this would have taken everything that Jesus had to say this sentence with a loud voice. I mean, literally, the the method of execution in crucifixion was suffocation. As one's hands hung up over their head, it pulled their ribcage apart, crushing their lungs in the middle. And so all Jesus was able to do was stand up on the ankles that had nails going through them in the excruciating pain of that, putting all of his weight on that so he could just get enough tension off of his chest to fill his lungs up enough to utter these words loudly, only to sink back down after that and take his last breath. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God. He pr- I can't imagine witnessing an execution like this leading me to praise God if only, only because it was fitting. He saw in this moment what probably as a centurion, a Roman guard participating in this execution and and most, most likely overseeing this execution himself, in all of everything that he's seeing, going, wait a second, this is not like any other execution that I've seen. This is not like any other scene that I have witnessed. This is not like any other man that I have seen. What they have said about him must be true. Praise God that he sent this man innocent to do what he said that he would do. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. They were mourning. And all his acquaintances, the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea 
He was a member of the council, the council that had found Jesus guilty and taken Jesus to Pilate in Rome to be put to death, a member of the council and a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He, he did the opposite of what his peers did. In bringing Jesus to Pilate for execution, he's coming to Pilate as Jesus was executed and said, can I respectfully bury this man according to our customs? Can I care for him? He was showing devotion to him. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. He took it down, the body of Jesus. It was the day of preparation. I can imagine Pilate going, okay, listen, if you want him, go take him. Go get him down. Take him off the cross. It was the day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested, according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. Fully planning on going and encountering Jesus' dead, lifeless body in a room of stone so that they could put spices down, preparing his body. But when they went in, in, they did not find... I missed the most important part. And they found the stone rolled from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, side note, any time that men, humans, women in this case, encounter angels in scripture the the most obvious response is fear and prostrate like prostrating falling on their face laying down why they ask why do you seek the living among the dead why do you seek the living among the dead is this like a riddle that the angels are proposing? Why do you seek the living among the dead? And the, the women are going, what is the living among the dead? I mean, we're living, they're living. I mean, this is a place for the dead. Because they hadn't gotten it yet. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man was, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered these words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. They remembered his words, and upon returning, they told them. They believed the words. They remembered what Jesus said, and now they believed that it had come true. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them, to the apostles, an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Okay, so the, the 11 dudes 
that were closest to Jesus and some of the other people, the 11 guys that saw everything that Jesus did, every blind man that he gave sight to, every dead person that Jesus rose from the dead, every deaf person that could hear, every lame person that could walk, everything that Jesus did, the water to the wine and all of that, the 11 guys that were closest to him, that heard everything. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, a fairy tale of sorts. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Listen, this is an event that never has or never will again in history. It is the only event in history like its kind where a dead person has come back to life, leaving the grave, leaving the prison of death, and finding life again. And and yes, Jesus did bring a couple of people back from the dead only for them to die again. Jesus is the only one to rise from the dead to live forevermore. He lives today will live forevermore. In this narrative, what we see, the main crux of it, is that Jesus is who he says he is, and he did what he said that he would do, and he will do what he said that he would do. It affirms for us everything that Jesus said that he was and everything that Jesus said that he would do. It, it's, the, it's the whipped cream and cherry on the top. It's the icing on the cake. It's whatever you, it's the dessert at the end of a great, it's, it's the crux, it's the top, it's the peak, it's the pinnacle, it's everything wrapped up into this. Where Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, what are we doing? But he did rise from the dead, and so all hope is ours, all freedom is ours through trust in him. This is the affirmation of who Jesus was and what Jesus did. So let's, let's peek at it for a second. He died, first of all, he died because of our unbelief. You say, I didn't see us anywhere in that narrative, James. Yes. I mean, we wouldn't be alive for nearly 2,000 years after that. And yet, he died for our unbelief. Paul would say after this whole thing, later on in the New Testament, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The people who he was talking to at that point were maybe, probably, most likely not present at Jesus' execution. They were not part of the crowd yelling, crucify him. And yet it was their sins that put him on the cross. It was my sins that put him on the cross. It was your sins that put him on the cross. He died in our unbelief. What do you mean our unbelief? I mean, it's, it's just like the people that yelled, crucify him, the disciples that turned from him, Judas betraying him, the unbelief of the soldiers and executioners. They killed him because they didn't think that he was who he said he was. They mocked him. Oh yeah, if you're the king of the Jews, why don't you just save yourself? If you're this big, high, mighty guy, why don't you save yourself? The religious leaders mocked him. Oh yeah, why don't you save yourself? If you really are the Christ, the chosen one, if you really are who you say you are, why are you hanging up there on a cross being executed by the Romans? They didn't believe him. They didn't trust him. They thought he was a mockery. They thought he was a fake. 
They would not submit to his authority. His authority was clear. Even the Pharisees who did not like Jesus whatsoever, when Jesus would teach, they said, who is this man that teaches with such authority? They recognized his authority, and yet they would not submit to it. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you find yourself, either today or sometime in the past, your life has been characterized by a lack of trust in who Jesus is and a lack of submission to his authority. We naturally come by wanting to rule our own world. And maybe we never see ourselves as governmental rulers or in charge of a corporation, or in charge of a team, or in charge of whatever. Maybe not that kind of rule, but, but I'm in charge of me, and I'll do what I want to do. I'll say what I want to say. I'll hurt who I want to hurt as long as I get ahead. I, I will be over me. I don't need anybody telling me what to do. And whether we say that or whether we act that, it's the same. And, and we will not recognize, we will not submit to Jesus as Lord. We will not submit to his authority either presently right now for you or at some time in the past, if you trust Jesus in faith now, at some time in the past, that was true of you. Even if you trusted Jesus at five years old, I can assure you, with a five-year-old in the house right now, she, oops, that five-year-old is the center of her little world. And when her world comes crashing down, she lets you know about it. When she doesn't get the toy that she wants or she doesn't get the food that she wants or she doesn't get whatever because it's all about her. And listen, I could pick on my kid. I could pick on your kids. They're all the same. I was the same. You all were the same. I mean, we like to be the center of our world and yet Jesus is ruler over our world. And he we put him to death because of our unbelief. We stood in the crowd, maybe not verbally, maybe not 2,000 years ago, but our life and our testimony was, crucify him. Let me walk. Unbelief. And yet, and yet, the resurrection proves his claims. It proves that our unbelief of Him is misplaced. His resurrection proves His claims. Look, the darkness affirms it. I, I told you, this was in the middle of the day. It's not some overcast skies. It's not some cloudy darkness. Like, it's legit, real darkness. Like, Jesus even said right before this, leading up to this, that this is the hour of darkness. I think He meant it, but figuratively and spiritually in that moment, but now it came true literally and naturally, an hour of darkness. His resurrection proves his claims. The way was made. The curtain was torn. The, the way for men to enter into God's presence was opened up because of what Jesus accomplished. What was that? He died on the cross as an innocent man, and he died the penalty that we paid. Earlier, a couple weeks ago, in the garden, we talked about how Jesus said, God, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Take the cup of the wrath that you will pour out on me for the sins of the whole world. If it's your will, take that from me. And it wasn't the Father's will. It was the Father's will to pour that cup out on Jesus, and Jesus knew that. And yet he walked right into it willingly and submissively, obedient to the Father and obedient to what the Father said and the reason that he sent him. And his resurrection proved that. 
The curtain was torn. The angels affirm. Don't you know? He's not here. He's not dead. His body is gone. Jesus lives. He's alive. How does that happen? How does a dead man come back to life? How, even if, we, even if you affirm, and we should, it is true, it's not something that we would just say flippantly, even if you affirm that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, how does somebody come back to life in that regard? He was still completely God and completely man. How does the man side of that come back to life? How does the body disappear? Nobody took it. Nobody hid it. They didn't get the wrong tomb. They knew where he was. They had come there a couple days ago. They knew the tomb that was his. They didn't get it wrong. The grave clothes were still there. He was gone. And the angel said, the Son of Man, he, Jesus said this, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of God, or into the hands of sinful men, the opposite, and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. What they're saying is, what he said that he would do, he did. Look, the tomb is empty. He told you he would be crucified. He told you that he would rise. He did that. These are messengers sent by God, Jesus raised by the power of God, both of them messengers affirming that Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of Man, and that was a claim to deity that he would sit at the right hand, God the Son, God the Father, ruling and reigning over all things. The Son of Man must be delivered and on the third day rise again. His resurrection proves his claims and his resurrection demands our trust. The first person that we see in the narrative that trusts him is the criminal that's crucified next to him. Under the same condemnation that we are, he said. Don't you know he's under the same condemnation that we are, and yet we deserve it. He is innocent. Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus had said, I am ruler of a kingdom, but my kingdom is not of this world. He trusted Jesus in who he said he was and that he would do what he said that he would do. Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? I know who you are. I trust who you are. He affirms that. The centurion, he, and that man was justified in the resurrection, that his trust was not misplaced. The centurion Right there, after the darkness and the curtains torn, the centurions say, verse 47, he praised God. Certainly this man was innocent. He praised God because of what had taken place, because he recognized, he heard what Jesus said about himself, he heard what Jesus said that he would do, and then he saw all of this take place, and he trusted Jesus then, and when Jesus was resurrected, it affirmed, it, dub, it rubber-stamped, that guy did not misplace his trust in Jesus. Joseph. When he went, he was not part, he was part, but he was not with the guys who said, Jesus is guilty, kill him. He may have been a member, but he was not part of that. He recognized who Jesus said that he was, and he trusted who Jesus said that he was, because he went to Pilate and said, I know they got this wrong, and I can't do anything about it now, but I can take him and bury him and show devotion to him. And that is his act, initial act of belief in Christ. He trusted Jesus, that he was who he says he was, and that he did what he said that he would do. 
And then the women at the tomb, upon hearing this, they leave, they remember Jesus' words, and they go and tell everyone what happened. Remember Jesus said this? He did it. He did it. He's not at the tomb anymore. He did it. He actually did what he said. Jesus is who he says he was, and he did what he said that he would do. So I want to ask real quickly, what did Jesus say? Who did Jesus say that he was? Because you can hear me say it, but it's not just James's words. It's the words of Scripture. It's the very words of Jesus himself recorded in Scripture. Luke 9, 20-22, Peter, upon talking with Jesus, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus told him, you're right, but don't tell anybody. For the Son of Man must suffer and on the third day rise again. What the angel said, don't you remember he told you in Galilee? This was that, Luke 9, 20-22. The Son of Man, I am the Son of Man. I am sent by God, will go back to rule with Him. I will be crucified and I will rise again. He said it. John 14, 6, I am the way. What? The way to what? The way to the Father. Your way to the Father. Opening up the curtain torn, opening up the way. He is the source of truth. I am the truth. John 14, 6. I am the life. The only way that you see truth is from me. I say what is true. I do what is true. You know truth when you know me. He is the source of life. The only way to live, to overcome death. John 18, 36. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus says. Pilate's asking him, are you really a king? My kingdom is not of this world. He's saying, yes, I am. And guess what? I don't sit on a throne that you could sit on. I don't wear a crown like you could wear. I sit on the throne that's over the entire universe. I wear the crown that rules over all things that exist. My kingdom is not of this world. Mark 14, 61 and 62. Are you the Christ? They said, are you the Christ? This was on trial. And he says, I am. Which to the Jewish listeners means Yahweh, God from eternity past. I am. And you will see the Son of Man, he claims to be God, the Son of Man seated at God's right hand, spoken of in Daniel 7. I am. I am the I am. I am Yahweh. I am God he said, proved in his resurrection. John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. He is the I am. John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He is God. Jesus, out of his mouth, he is God. John 18, 37, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. So all of these things that Jesus said, he is God. He came from God. All the things that he said that he would do. And this is but a short list of those things. When he says to Pilate, I am, I bear witness to the truth and the people who hear me and affirm it are of the truth. If all of these things that he said were wrong, then he would have laid in the tomb dead because God would not, rubber stamp, not raise from the dead somebody who claimed to be God unless he actually was God and God the Father says, hey, don't stay dead. Get up out of that grave. It affirmed that Jesus is who he says he was. 
God in the flesh, that he came to bear the weight of the sins of the entire world and that he could do that because he was God in the flesh and that God affirmed everything that he said in in Jesus' even words of what would happen. So here's where you are today. Believe it or not. And, And I don't just mean... I don't just mean agree with the facts. James, I agree with what you said. It's more than that. It's not just agree with the facts. It's recognize the authority and submit to it and be devoted to it and trust Him. The agreeing with the facts is only the beginning. It's only the precursor. You can agree with the facts and say, but I'm not going to submit my life to him. I'm going to be in charge of me. I'm going to continue to do things the way that I want to do them. Listen, I'll just come to church every week and I'll be all right. I don't need to trust in Jesus' death and resurrection. I believe it, so I'm good. I'll just show up. I'll read my Bible enough. I'll try to be pretty good. Listen, that is continuing in unbelief. That is continuing for you to believe that if I just do this and do that and keep this and try that, then I'll be okay. God will have to look at me and say, you did your best, come on in. But that's not the way that it works. That's unbelief. That's not believing that Jesus was who he says he was and that he did what he said that he would do because what he said was, I'm gonna pay the penalty that you cannot pay yourself. You can't pay it by doing a bunch of good stuff and by showing up in a building. You can't do it by opening up the Bible. As important as it is, that doesn't get you there. It's trusting in me. It's trusting that I did what you could never do for yourself. And I did it because God sent it, because it was necessary. Would you believe it or not? Would you be devoted to it? I pray that you may realize your need for jesus death and resurrection that it would lead you to trust him with your whole self that you would live in devotion to him not because you're trying to earn god's favor but because you realize that you cannot be good enough to earn god's favor that the only one who earned god's favor was jesus and he ended up on the cross because of you would you trust that i pray that you would Because he's the only one that can outrun and overcome death. Death is coming for all of us. You could try to delay it. You could try to evade it. You could try to prolong it, but you can't. You won't. When it's your time, it's your time, and that's the end of it. There's there's nothing after that. There's much after that. But death has the final word as far as the physical life is concerned. That's it. Jesus is the only one that comes back from that. None of us will. So the question is, what happens after that for you? If you trust Christ, it's life. If you don't, it's just death. And that doesn't mean you just die and then lay in the grave. It means that you die and you take from that point forward, you bear the weight of the wrath of God for your sins in and of yourself rather than trusting that Jesus did it for you. His life 
And his living now for eternity means that we can have new life from now all the way through eternity. Would you trust him? Would you submit to him as ruler? Would you put away this little kingdom that you live in where you are over yourself, your own authority? And would you submit to his authority once and for all? And if you would say, James, that's me. I mean, that's the way that I live. That's every day. I'm trusting Jesus. I know that I can't do it. We need to be reminded of that. This is not a message that we grow out of. It's not a message that gets old and stale. It's a reminder that we have nothing apart from the resurrection of Christ in our life in Him. And it's every day that we wake up and live in that until we don't wake up that day and we live in eternity with Him only because of what He's done, only because He is who He says He is and that He did what He said that He would do. Listen, if you've not trusted that, you can go in your, a room or even where you sit right now and you can cry out to God and admit your need for Him and, and admit your trust in Him. You could do that right where you're sitting. If you're unsure about what that looks like and you just don't know, or maybe you're not quite at that point, but you want to talk to somebody, we have a number that you can text. Just text in your name to that number. Drop us your phone number, 405-592-6725. Text that with your name, and I'll get back to you. And we can figure out, we can do it on the phone. Um, however we need to talk through that, I can talk through that with you. I can answer questions for you. Send questions in. Send an email if you want to email 1-L-P-O-U-L-A-I-N at fbcholdenville.com. Shoot me an email. Listen, God's word demands a response. Jesus' resurrection demands our trust. Would you trust him? Would you be working that out in your life? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for this time, and I thank you for your word, and I, I trust that your Holy Spirit can take your word and affect the hearts and minds of people. God, I pray that you would renew our minds, that you would renew our joy, that you would increase it as we trust Him. God, and for those who are not trusting Christ right now, God, who are still stuck in their world, seeking their own rule, God, would you call them to submit to Jesus' authority? God, and find freedom where they're at. God, accomplish your will in this moment. We pray these things in Christ's name.